of John's Gospel, John chapter 4. We are still in the middle of the account of Jesus' dealing with the woman at the well in Samaria. We are following the life of Christ through the New Testament, at least to this point, in more or less chronological order. That's not the order in which we are given it in any of the Gospels. And I hope that you have learned some perhaps fascinating little facts that you can impress people with next time you play Bible trivia. Uh, namely, that the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, both began their account of the public ministry of Jesus after the imprisonment of John the Baptist. John, however, begins his account with an earlier Judean ministry that took place while John was not yet put in prison. And we saw that this was a trip to Jerusalem to observe Passover. While in the area, Jesus removes himself from Jerusalem with his disciples and begins to baptize in the same general area where John the Baptist is baptizing. There arises some jealousy between the disciples of John and Jesus over the fact that they feel their master, John the Baptist, sort of getting the short end of the stick. Uh, after all, this guy's a Johnny-come-lately. He's the one you baptized, after all. Why is he now having more men come to him than you are? And at this, Jesus removes his disciples from Judea. They are now traveling north back to their home base, which will be in Galilee, the northern part of Israel. And to get from the south to the north, you obviously have to go through the middle. And the middle of Israel was Samaritan territory. They must travel through Samaria, we are told in verse 4. But I would remind you that when the word must is used in the gospel record, it generally means more than just a physical necessity. It refers to, so often, and I believe so here, the necessity of divine appointment. There was a reason Jesus was going through Samaria, and the reason was this woman, this encounter there on the edge of the well that Jacob had dug probably uh, 2,000 years almost earlier. On the edge, the lip of that well, his encounter with this woman of Samaria. We saw the rise of the Samaritan sect. I told you there were, in fact, a few hundred Samaritans still living today over in the Middle East. They arose basically as a mixed breed, some Israelites that were left behind from the Assyrian captivity, intermarrying with these foreign peoples that the Assyrians brought in to repopulate the land. And not only were they, physically speaking, a mongrel bunch, which of course is what the Europeans think of us Americans, uh, they were a somewhat mixed race as far as their own physical makeup was concerned, so was their worship sort of out of the ordinary. They only received the first five books of the Bible, the five books of Moses, and they, looking in it for the approved place of worship, seemed to find it in the fact that Abraham, when he first entered Canaan, went to a place named Shechem and there built the first altar and for the first time in the land of Canaan offered sacrifice to God. Now, to make a long story short, Shechem happens to be on the shoulder of one Mount Gerizim. There is a mountain pass through this particular region. These places, Jacob's Well, Sychar, Shechem, Syker, in fact, could be an old, uh, a modern name for that old place. But these places, these old historical places, the places Abraham first settled, the place Jacob came back to after he had been with his uncle Laban for 21 years, 
It was in this valley, right between two mountains, Mount Gerizim on the one side, Mount Ebal on the other. And it was those two mountains, you remember, that when Israel entered Canaan, Moses gave them directions that some of them were to go up on Mount Gerizim, some on Mount Ebal, and shout down to the people as they came through the pass, the ones from Mount Ebal shouting down the curses of the law, the ones from Mount Gerizim, the blessings of the law. And from all of that, the Samaritans gathered that this was the place that God would be worshipped. There on the shoulders of Mount Gerizim, and they built them a temple, which temple was destroyed by a Jewish army about a hundred years before Christ. And you now understand perhaps a little of the background, a little of the animosity between Jews and Samaritans. We saw the great contrast between this woman... And the man who has preceded this account, I mean, this woman, basically, her conversation with Christ consumes much of chapter 4. We just had a lengthy conversation in chapter 3 with a man named Nicodemus. But notice the contrast between the two people. The contrast couldn't be greater. He was a man, a Jew. She was a woman, a Samaritan. He was a somebody. He was, a, as we would say, a senator, a representative, a bigwig, a member of the Sanhedrin of Israel. She was a nobody. He was respected. She was apparently an outcast. But both were in desperate need of what Jesus came to give. We have just closed, concluded last week with verse 10, this remarkable statement. Jesus said to her, as they are sitting there on the lip of this well, as he has asked her for a drink of water, and she's responded saying, Well, how could it be that you, a Jew, asking me a drink of water who am a Samaritan? Jesus answers and said unto her, If you knew, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, Thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou this living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well, and drank from it himself and his children and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water, springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water, that I thirst not, neither come here to draw. And Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus saith unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. That saidst thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worship in this mountain. And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. 
for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, who is called Christ, and when he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. And upon this came his disciples, and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, why, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot, and went her way into the city, and saith to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. Jesus has just told this Samaritan woman that for the asking, for the asking, he would give her living water, just as he has asked of her a favor, a drink of water. So he has said to her, if you just knew what this gift was and who it is that's talking to you, you would ask, and the most astounding part of this, I would give it. I'll give it. I won't make you pay for it. I won't make you earn it or merit it. I will give you this water for the asking. Living water. The expression living water was sometimes used in that day to speak of water that was running water. Fresh water, as we would say, as opposed to that which was stale or stagnant. That in a cistern or a tank or something like that. But here it clearly means more than that. For notice the reference in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God. Now that should make some things click for us. Where have we talked so far about a gift in the Gospel of John? Well, of course, it is back in John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. If you knew the gift... In other words, what Jesus is doing here is clearly pointing us more than just to the distinction between water running in a stream as opposed to stagnant water in a tank somewhere. But he is speaking of a gift, a gift that he has spoken of previously, the gift of life. Living water is a metaphorical way of expressing the life, the spiritual life, the never-ending life, the satisfying life that Jesus came to give. And so, just as natural water refreshes, vivifies the physical body, so this water would refresh, vivify, give life to the very soul of the one who drinks it. Alright? That's, first of all, the distinction concerning what exactly is this living water. But the second question is one that she really would like to know, is where is this living water? And it's interesting that she, just like Nicodemus in the previous chapter, first understand Jesus to be talking in the literal sense. Now we have those among us today in Christendom that say that the literal hermeneutic is always the proper hermeneutic. If you can possibly take the words of Scripture literally, that's the way to understand them. Well, I would point out to you that Nicodemus took Jesus literally when he said, you must be born again. And he was wrong. He missed it. This woman is taking Jesus literally when he says, I'll give you some water. Because she wants to know, where are you going to get this water? How are you going to get it? She says, the well is deep. 
Indeed, it was deep. If it's the well that we think is Jacob's well over in the Middle East today, it is over a hundred feet deep. In fact, it's probably even deeper in Jesus' day. This is not just a little old shallow well. This is a deep, deep well. How are you going to give me some water? That's her question. Since the well is so deep and I don't see a bucket, I don't see a rope, where are you going to get this water? Or perhaps you're going to dig a well. You know, you must be greater than even Jacob who dug this well in the first place and drank of it, he and his twelve sons and their cattle from this well. Are you even greater than Jacob? You're going to dig us a new well? You see, her questions are all assuming that Jesus is talking on the literal, physical plane. And of course, she is talking to someone greater than Jacob. But that's her question. How are you going to get this water? Where are you going to find this living water? And although Jesus does not fully explain it here, it's something that sort of comes out in the overall course of the the dialogue, it becomes increasingly clear that Jesus himself is the source of this water. Oh, I wish I could impress that upon you, that this water is nothing more and nothing less than the life that is found in Jesus Christ. That's what it is. It's life. It's that which gives life. That which flows from Him to us. Notice that John earlier, and I keep referring you to other parts of John that we've already encountered, but look back into chapter 1, right off the bat, as we would say here in the South, right from the get-go. Don't know exactly what that expression means, but right from the get-go, right out of the chute, They say that out in Wyoming. Right out of the chute. In John 1, verse 4, speaking of this eternal word that was with God, was God, and would become flesh and dwell among men. Look in verse 4. In Him was life. Let that ring in your ears. In Him was life. You want to know where life is? It's in Him. It's in His person. And later in 1 John 5, John will end his little letter over there by saying that he that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. I mean, this is simple, folks. You can't get any more simple than that. You got him, you got it. You don't have him, you don't have it. Why? How can we say that? How can you say that I might not have life even though I don't have him? Because life is in him. The life is contained in him, in his person. He's the giver, the source of the life. That will become increasingly clear. And notice a few more chapters away in John chapter 7. We're not there yet. Who knows if we'll ever get there. But anyway, in John chapter 7, in verse 37, we see in the last day, that great day of the feast, the feast referred to as the Feast of Tabernacles. And in Jesus' day, the Jews had a custom. On the last day of that feast, they would fill these huge barrels with water. And they would take them up to the altar on which sacrifices were offered out there in the courtyard of the temple. And they would take these barrels and they would pour these barrels of water over that huge altar. The altar itself was 15 feet tall, 10 cubits high. I mean, this is a big thing. And the priests would take these huge barrels of water and pour them over that altar. Because what they were doing was trying to recreate. You know, we're talking about dia. Diorama. Thanks, Bonnie. Diorama. You know, we're, we're trying to create a visual picture, a visual scene. That's not the real thing, you understand, but we're just sort of creating a visual scene, right? Well, that's what the priests were doing. They were trying to recreate something. 
And what it was, was remember back there in the wilderness when Moses took the rod and struck the rock and waters began to pour from it? Well, I mean, obviously they couldn't re- reenact the miracle itself, so they did the best, next best thing. They took these barrels of water and poured them over the altar so that the waters would come gushing out to be a, re- a diorama, a reenactment of that miracle that had happened back there in the wilderness wanderings. And in the middle of all of that, here's the huge crowd that has gathered to witness this diorama, this scene, redepicting one of the great events of Israel's past involving striking a rock and water pouring forth from it. And Jesus stands and says, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture has saith, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, whom they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And by the way, this is not talking about some personal experience, you know, the Holy Ghost coming to me because I glorified Jesus. It's talking about the historical event of the cross work of our Lord and his subsequent act, ascension to glory. That historical fact, the ascension of Christ to the throne, had not yet taken place, so the Spirit was not yet given in the sense that it would be. Jesus, of course, about to go away from his disciples, keeps telling them, I'm going away, but I'm not going to leave you orphaned. I'm going to send another, even the Spirit of truth. I'm going to pray the Father. He'll give you another comforter, one that will be with you. And what's happening on the day of Pentecost is Peter is saying, you're wondering what's going on here. I'll tell you what's going on. Christ, whom you crucified, whom you put in the grave, whom you murdered, has been raised to the throne by the Father. He has prayed to the Father, received the promise of the Spirit, and now has poured it upon His people. The age of the Spirit has begun. So you see this idea of the life, this water, that's going to flow from Jesus through a vital union with His people, that you and I are recipients of nothing less than the Spirit of God in Him. Now, that's where this living water is. Where do you find it? Where you find it in Him. Wherever you find Him, that's where you find the water. But how does this living water work? Let's go back to chapter 4 a moment. And notice that she's asking some very practical things. In fact, her... uh, After her questions in verse 11 and 12, Jesus responds and says, Whosoever drinks of this water, the water in your well here, shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Now we need, first of all, to talk about what Jesus did not mean. He did not mean that those who drink of this living water will never thirst again in any sense, absolutely. I get thirsty. Do you? The saints of God have always gotten thirsty when they didn't have anything to drink. In other words, he is not, and by the way, that's the most literal rending again, the most literal rending of verse 13, is those who are Christians will never suffer from thirst. And I say that is simply not the testimony of Christians today, nor has it ever been the testimony of Christians, because that is not what Jesus was talking about. He's not talking about physical thirst. Neither is he saying that you and I, in the spiritual sense, which is the sense in which he's talking, will not thirst for more 
of this water. Think back to Psalm 42. As the heart panteth for the water brooks, so panteth I, you know, David says, for the God. My soul, he says, is a thirst for God. And I hope your soul this morning is a thirst for the living God. It doesn't mean that you and I will not thirst for more of this water. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying that you take one drink and you never have thirst again. You drink so much this one time that you'll never be thirsty. You know, you can drink a lot. You ever notice that? I mean, you can drink a lot when you're really thirsty. Man, you can down it. But in a little while, you get thirsty again. It'll last you for a while. He is not saying that you can drink once and never be thirsty again so that this is going to last you one gulp. I guess we could call this the big gulp. This is going to last you through all eternity. What he's saying is basically this. Two things in particular. That you will never thirst in the spiritual sense for anything else. You know, the, tell a story about the guy trying to learn how to play the violin and picks up the violin. He's playing this note. His wife comes home and he's playing this note. The next day he picks up the violin and he's playing this note. And all he, all he does all day long is play this note. About a week into it, she says, you know, what's wrong? Something, something's wrong here. She says, other people when they play the violin, you know, they go all up and down, you know, and they do all these, and they play a bunch of notes. And you just play this one note. And he said, well, they're hunting for it, and I found it. Well, in the spiritual sense, that's what Jesus is saying to this woman. When you drink of this water, your soul will never thirst again. Because you found it. You found what satisfies you. You're not going to go looking for something else. You found it. There is a sense in which the Christian has come home. He's found it. He's not out there looking for something else as if there was some other water that's going to satisfy the thirsting of his soul. He knows where the water is and he's, he's there. It's sort of like the disciples after the big crowds had been following Jesus and they started wandering off after he talked about eating his flesh, drinking his blood. They didn't, by the way, they, they took that literally, you'll notice. And uh, Jesus turned to his disciples and says, Well, boys, uh, what are you hanging around for? You going away too? And Peter says, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. Do, do you see what Peter is saying? You're where the water is. Everything out there, we've been out there. We know what it's like out there. It's dry. It's dusty. It's thirsty. Here's where the water is. And suppose that you could perhaps pick a person, like to say this Samaritan woman, pick her up out of first century Samaritan life and set her down in 20th century, almost 21st century, 20th century olive branch life. You know, she's sitting in your home. And after a little while, she gets thirsty and she gets up and she starts going through your cupboard looking for a bowl. And you say, well, what in the world are you doing? Well, I'm getting a bowl or a pot or something so I can go out to your well, to your water supply out there and, and get me some water. And you say, well, you don't understand. We don't do that anymore. You, you see that pipe sticking up? You see that round thing? Just, just walk over there. We call it a faucet. Go over there and turn the knob and watch what happens. 
And so this Samaritan woman from the first century walks over and turns the faucet on your sink and out comes water. And what? Oh, she would be shocked. She would be amazed. Never seeing, never even imagining that something could be. And what would she say? She'd say, well, we're never going to thirst again. We'll never be thirsty again. Well, what does she mean? That she's never going to get thirsty? No. But there's a source of supply of the water right here in the house. Do you see the sense that the need will always be there, but the supply is always here? I'm trying to get across to the idea that eternal life is not one big dose of life. It is a living relationship with He who is life. And so it is that the quenching of the thirst that Jesus is talking about is not because we drink so much when we come to Christ. Or not because we've got one drink and we don't thirst anymore. But it's that the supply will always be there to slake and to satisfy the thirsting of the soul. In fact, is that not what he means when he says that the water I'll give you will in fact be a well of water springing up where? In you. In other words, the source of this water won't be, like we would say to the Samaritan woman, you don't go out in the backyard anymore to find water. The water's right here in the house. The water's not outside the house. It's inside the house where the supply is. In the same way, Jesus is telling this Samaritan woman that the water that you really are needing, the water which will truly satisfy the thirsting of your soul, is not out there anymore. It's not that you're going to find it out there somewhere, but the water will be in you, springing up within you. Now, I'll say more about that in a moment, but just notice the great contrast. The supply of this water is within a person The fountainhead is within the person rather than having to look outside the person for life. But the big problem here is, you'll notice Jesus' statement in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and if you knew who it was talking to, presupposes that he's talking to a pretty ignorant person. He's talking to someone who does not know. And one of our big problems, if we say, well, yeah, life is to be found in Christ, it's eternal life, it's satisfying life, why is it that we have such a hard time getting folks to come drink? Well, the problem is we're dealing with folks like he was dealing with. Number one, they don't even know they're thirsty. Well, they know they're thirsty for something. You ask them, are you thirsty for something? Do you need something? Do you want? Oh, yes. But they don't know what will satisfy. They don't know the gift of God that will truly satisfy the thirsting of the soul. They have no idea. They out here chasing mirages. They think, well, you know, if I had more money, if I had a better job, if I had a bigger house, a newer car, a newer wife, you know, whatever, uh, that's where happiness is to be found. That's where I will be satisfied. And in fact, they do not realize that it is inside that the problem is. And that none of these things, as Solomon said long ago, will satisfy the innermost thirsting of the soul. Just not going to happen. 
So in other words, we're dealing with people who don't know what they need in the first place, don't know where to find it in the second place, don't know who it's coming from in the third place. And the fourth problem, and the problem that he's going to address here, is that they don't even know how to drink it. You'll notice that after this discussion in verse 15, the woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, and neither come here to draw. Give it to me. Now, he said, you'd asked and I'd give it. Right? And now she's asking. But notice, do you understand, do you see a little self-centeredness? I want this water so that I don't have to make this long trip out here to the well every day. She still has no conception of what this is about. No conception, if you will, of how to drink the water. That is what he must deal with now. Jesus now moves very quickly. And this is often the case that Jesus will take men from the physical problem to the spiritual problem. And he moves very quickly to do that. He immediately, just out of nowhere, says to her, Go call your husband. Go fetch your husband. Bring your husband here. Now that's a rather strange thing to ask in the middle of a discussion on water. And you can say, well, I wonder why he's doing that. Why would he ask that question? Well, her answer is, I don't have a husband. And technically, he says, you're right. But you've had five husbands, and the fellow that you're living with now without the benefit of clergy, as the old expression used to be, is not your husband. Uh, by the way, living together out of marriage was very condemned and frowned upon in Jewish and Samaritan life Howbeit viewed today, and certainly in the scriptures. But in other words, what is he doing asking these probing questions? You can perhaps have a good reason why you've got, have had five husbands. It's somewhat unusual, but the very fact that she's had five husbands, and especially the fact that she's living with a man right now, who's not her husband, you could say, well, he's bringing that up to basically make her confront her sordid past. After all, he's the savior of sinners, so he's bringing this up to show her her sin. Well, I'll buy that. I mean, okay, that's all right. But I don't think that fits the context. He's been talking about water. He's been talking about thirsting. And I don't believe that Jesus is bringing up her past marital status and all of the situation, the moral mess that she's in, in order to throw up in her face what a bad person she is. But he's throwing this up before her to show her what a thirsty person she is. I mean, you can tell me your sagas about how you, you know, take the most thirsty time in your life and, you know, try to impress me. Or I read the accounts of men stranded in a life raft out in the middle of the ocean with no water except water all around, not a drop to drink. Or I read the old accounts of the pioneers crossing the plains and breaking down out there between the water supplies and the thirst that overtook them, their tongues swelling. The, you've seen, of course, the crawling across the desert water, water, all of that. But my friend, does it compare with what Jesus is describing here? This whole, this woman's whole life, her saga, is the account 
of someone that's thirsty. And she can't find what's going to satisfy her. I don't know. I don't even know if it's important why she's had five husbands or why she's living with this guy at the moment. But the point is, is that it's revealing to her her own heart. She doesn't even know what it is. In other words, here is Christ, not only the Savior of sinners, and I don't want to belittle the sin in this. He is certainly the Savior of sinners. But he's also, as this account is making clear, he's the satisfier of the thirsty. In other words, woman, don't you understand? You're looking for something. You're looking for water. And you've never found it. And I can give you the water that will satisfy your soul. Now immediately, out of the blue again, she begins to question him about some things. She is struck, of course, as you and I would be if I walked up to somebody and he, uh, you know, we got all these fortune tellers that want to tell us our future, uh, dial into the psychic hotline and spend a little money with these people. And uh, one of the old English preachers was walking out of the church one day, met one of these so-called soothsayers on the sidewalk. This lady said, "I, for a, for a um, shilling, I will tell you your future. And he says, I tell you what, I'll give you two shillings if you can tell me what I was doing yesterday. I mean, you know, these guys, they can foretell the future. Why can't they foretell the past, you know? That, at least, I've got a way of checking them up and seeing if they know what they're talking about. Well, Jesus was telling this woman her past history. She, of course, is struck with that. Here is someone who is, I've never met, never laid eyes on, doesn't know me from Adam, and yet he knows all about me. That would get my attention. I don't know about yours. Here is someone who has a gift. Here is at least a prophet. And that's, of course, what she says. I perceive you're a prophet. I believe you have some insight into these things. So I've got a question for you. Now, it's not phrased as a question. It's more or less stated as a statement. But there is an implicit question in it. It's a theological question. You see, you Jews say we're the word of worship God down there on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. We Samaritans, we worship God up here on Mount Gerizim. The implicit question, unstated but very implicit, is this. To which mountain, if I really want to worship God, if I want to serve Him, if I want to be God's people, to which mountain do I go? Now, you might ask, why in the world would she bring this up? There are those who say, well, you know, she's embarrassed because He knows all about her and she's trying to change the subject. I don't know about that. I, I think that I would probably do the same if I ran into a... We were talking about John this morning and the beast, you know, what he wrote in the book of Revelation about the Antichrist. And if I met John, I'd have a few questions for him. I'd like John just uh, been wondering about this. Wouldn't you do the same? I mean, aren't there some sticky theological questions that run around in your mind that you just wish you had a good answer to? You just, for a moment, sit down at the feet of Jesus and get him to answer for you? Well, all of a sudden, this woman now has this encounter with a man who obviously is a prophet at the very least. And here's the question. It's the important question for a Samaritan. Who's right? Us or them? And Jesus again responds in a very interesting way by not so much, although he certainly makes it clear that salvation is of the Jews and you Samaritans, you worship what you don't know, you're worshiping ignorantly. 
In other words, salvation is of the Jews, the Messiah is coming from the Jews, and all of that. But basically, he's pointing up to her that the question is really irrelevant. Because the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers of God are not going to worship him at this mountain or the other mountain. That the true worshiper worships God in spirit and in truth. God being spirit, he's not tied to a location, not tied to a time, not tied to a place. So he seeks those who worship him in that same way, as we would say, in spirit and truth, in reality, from the heart, in the truth of his revealed will and word. Now, it's not that Jesus, again, does not condemn the Samaritans for their ignorant worship. But he's basically saying to the woman, woman, your, your, your very question is just not pertinent to the situation at hand. What you need is this thing called the Spirit. You need to worship God in spirit and in truth. And she replies saying, well, we know that when Messiah comes, and the Samaritans, by the way, had their belief in a coming Messiah, as well as the Jews. They had a different name for him, but he's roughly the same guy. He said, well, we know when Messiah comes, he's going to settle all these questions. And Jesus said, I that speak unto you am he. Well, let us close here. We will pick up the saga a little later in the chapter next week. I want to impress, though, two things that we touched on earlier, two things again, that I want you to think about. I said that whoever drinks of this water, that when Jesus says they'll never thirst again, what he's basically implying is this, that one drink of this water And it takes primacy. It takes the priority in your life. There, there are things like that. I, um, John, oh, I hope you by now realize John doesn't mince words. When he inserts something in the text, it's meant to cause your attention, to draw to it. It's interesting, you'll notice, he doesn't give us much physical description of what's going on. He doesn't tell us what this woman looked like, what she was wearing. He doesn't tell us how far the well was outside of town. Doesn't tell us how deep it is. We know from having found the well over there. You know, there's so many of the physical things of what was going on right here that he does not tell us that when he drops a little nugget It's obvious that he intends for us to pick up on the significance of what he said. There is a little nugget here. Did you read it? Verse 28. After all of this, after this conversation, verse 28. The woman then left her water pot. Now, why is that important? Why is it important for you and I to know that she left her water pot at the well and went back into the village to tell everybody, come out here, see a man who's told me everything. I believe this is the Messiah. Why is that important? Except that John is driving home this lesson. That what was so important in the first place, the thing that brought her out to that well there about noon, that hot, dusty day to draw water, when it was all said and done, she forgot all about it. 
Because there was something else she found at the well that became the dominant, the primary thing. And this need faded into the background. Now you say, well, preacher, you're reading a lot into that. I'm just saying John does not drop these little statements. He hadn't told us hardly anything of a descriptive nature and then reminds us of this. And I'm saying to you, my friend, that's exactly what happens in the Christian's life. He takes one drink of water and suddenly everything changes. I've talked to men who were addicted to crack cocaine. Men who at one time had very responsible positions. One man was a contractor, another an attorney. One was a bodyguard for President Reagan, then later Janet Reno. They'd been reduced to street bums. Lost everything. And I asked them how many times, and young people listen to me, I asked them, how many times did you take crack cocaine before you were addicted? And they said, once. From the very first time I used it, I could think of little else but where I was going to get some more. Kent Clark has told us of women who will do anything, including selling their own children to get more. Jesus is talking about another kind of addiction here. One drink and you're hooked. You are. You'll never get over it. Life will never be the same again. But oh, his burden is easy. His burden light. Oh, to be hooked on holiness, righteousness, good things, the life that comes from God Himself. But that's what He's saying here. Just one drink. And then, secondly, I pointed out that Jesus is saying that the well of water will be in you. The spring. Now, He's not saying that the source of the water is in you. A spring, you go to the spring, that's not the source of the water. The source of the water is hidden away somewhere under the rocks, you know. This is where the water comes out. This is the fountainhead. That's where the spring is. That's where the well is. You understand what I'm saying? The well doesn't produce the water. The source of the water is hidden somewhere else. But the well is where it comes out. Where you find the water. And in the same way, when he's saying that this water will be in you, a well of water springing up to everlasting life, what he's saying is, is that you won't be dependent on outside things for your life. That's the way the world works. The world thinks that it will be happy, satisfied, if it can just get these things in a row out here, you know. If I can just have more of this stuff. Jesus is saying, what I'm going to give you will give you the source of life in yourself. And my friend, that's the testimony of the saints down through the years, that no matter what their physical situation, whether in wealth or in poverty, whether in health or sickness, whether on top of the world or fixing to be burned at the stake, they found something within the water of life satisfying them. I leave you with the picture that Jeremiah, I'm not going to read it, you can turn there, 
in your leisure. In Jeremiah, the 17th chapter, Jeremiah draws a wonderful comparison between the man who's a cursed, cursed man. He says that he trusts in the flesh. He makes flesh his arm. And then the blessed man who trusts in God. And in Jeremiah 17, Jeremiah makes the comparison between two different kinds of plants. He says the cursed man is like the heath in the desert. And if you haven't ever been out where it's really dry, I know we think we've been through a drought here. Trust me, folks, we have dews here in Memphis heavier than rains out west this time of year. I mean, you want to see dry, go out to the west. Go out to the great American desert. By the end of August, by the first part of September, you can go out and just scour the countryside and it's just brown. It's like it's been burned over. But you let there come a little shower. And all of a sudden that sagebrush just perks right up. It'll just be brown as it can be. And then a little shower and it turns green overnight. And then in a day or two it's back to brown. And when it showers again it turns green. And Jeremiah is using this heath. This heath was an old scraggly desert plant, sort of like the sagebrush is out west. You know, something's got to grow there, so sagebrush does. It's just the covering. And it was like that. That it was utterly dependent, you see, on greenery and bearing fruit. It was utterly dependent on outside things, the outside weather. What's the weather like? Is it raining? Then I'm doing good. Is it not raining? I'm withering. Do you know people like that? That's the description of a lost man. Oh, he's happy as a lark. Everything's going great, as long as it's raining. But let the rain cease, and he withers up. Now, Jeremiah says the blessed man's not like that. The blessed man, he says, like a tree planted by the waters. And it doesn't care. It doesn't worry when the drought comes still bears its fruit, gives forth its leaves and bears fruit, even in the middle of a drought. Why? Because it doesn't need water? No. But because it's planted by the river, its roots are drawing water from the hidden source. It's not dependent on the outside rainfall. There's the picture. And one way, by the way, to judge our own Christian credentials, our own Christian life, What happens to us, and there have been times that I stray, and I'm sure you do as well, we stray away from the fountain, we stray away from the well. But the question is, can you stay away? Or do you say, no, I'm like Peter. Where else can I go? Thou hast the words of life. I found the well. I found the source of water. I found that which satisfies the thirsting of my soul. But there are those whom are here today, gone tomorrow, up and down, changeable, fickle, as we say, like the weather. Because indeed, in the spiritual sense, they're utterly dependent on how's the weather. What's happening out there governs what happens in here. Jesus is describing something completely different. You've now got something in here that will carry you through life no matter what it does out there let us pray Father thank you for the gift of Jesus your son and thank you for that water that flows forth from him and satisfies us oh Father as Pascal once said there is this emptiness this emptiness in our hearts 
in the shape of Jesus Christ. And only He can fill it. Only He can satisfy it. Father, I know not the hearts of those that sit in front of me. I barely know my own heart. So deceitful, so dishonest are our feelings and our hearts that we dare not rely upon them. But Father, you know. You know whether there are thirsty souls here today. You know what alone will satisfy them. And Father, though we sit here and proclaim these things, unless, Father, you open eyes, unless you unstop ears, men will never really know what it is that will satisfy that thirst. Father, would you be pleased to do a great work in the heart of the hearer today? If there is anyone outside of Christ, anyone not joined to him in saving faith and a recipient of this water, might you open their eyes to Jesus, that he is indeed the fairest of the fair. Fairest, Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature, the beautiful Savior, the one who came to give of himself, that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Would you be pleased to deal with hearts? If there are those who are your people, Father, but who have strayed, may you bring them back to dead sinner today, back to that well, back to the water of life to be found in Christ. May our hearts center upon him. May we never leave. May we never turn our back. We thank you, Father, that we have found that indeed this world is a dry, dusty, thirsty place. But, oh, we have found water poured on desert ground when we found your Son. Thank you for him. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.